1: And welcome to the Total Soccer Show. My name is Taylor Rockwell, and this morning I am a man who has never been happier that Ryan Bailey is on vacation because the Man United jokes would have just kept going and going and going and going and going. That's right. They would have gone as many times as Liverpool scored against Manchester United. So instead of Ryan Bailey, I will be joined by two fellas today. Uh, We're going to be talking about that game and several others. First up, Graham Ruthven, Graham, thank you for being here. No
2: problem at all. Taylor, is this going to be
1: a podcast today or is this therapy? <laughs> Graham, here's the thing. I've become fascinated by Scottish cuisine and not the things that happen in the Premier League. Right. Uh, what's the most challenging thing that you know how to cook? And if you could take a very long time explaining it, we could probably just skip the first segment and not talk about <laughs> Man United Liverpool. Does that sound good to
2: you? Yeah. I mean, the the only thing I really know to cook from scratch is is a solid uh, bolognese, which I would either mm-hmm. have with kind of penny pasta or, or spaghetti. Um, So you know you'll need your your medium onion, onions. You'll need You're them really finely chopped. <laughs> Slow it down. You know, Slow two it down. carrots. <laughs> Garlic cloves, <laughs> some beef mince, or, yeah. you know, you can go for some corn mince as well. Is this the way you want to, to go with this podcast? Now, Taylor? Graham,
1: let's talk about the differences in pasta you use for a moment. No, it's not the way I want to go, but I appreciate you humoring me, Graham. It's it's a pleasant way to start. Uh, so that is Graham Ruthman. Also with us today is a man who would never make Sir Alex Ferguson look as sad as Sir Alex Ferguson looked on Sunday. It's Joe Lowry. Joe, why did Jurgen Klopp and his youngsters make a senior citizen so sad? <laughs>
3: Oh, Taylor, those kids, you know, disrespecting their elders, the consistent pan shots to the crowd, and specifically to Alex Ferguson. Yeah. It gets a little hard to watch at a certain point, and and it wasn't so hard for me to watch, Taylor, but I'm assuming it was much harder for you to watch.
1: It was not my favorite thing. I will say that. I will say whoever was doing, like, the match day direction and cut from sad Sir Alex Ferguson to happy Kenny Dalglish. <laughs> yeah, was... Yeah. I mean, that was well done. That was well done, <laughs> albeit painful at the same time.
3: Oh, it was... The contrast was so real in that moment, Taylor.
2: I saw, I saw a joke on Twitter. It was, like, two... Two fathers at a wedding respond, uh, reacting to the same joke
1: <laughs> <laughs> about the groom's arrest record. It's uh, like, like Wait, some, what sort, now? Of, <laughs> some uh, sort of
2: off-color joke, yeah. In yeah. yeah. two
1: different, the two different reactions.
3: <laughs> That's good.
1: And we all know the groom has been married four times before. Cut to uh, bride's father's face. Yeah, that checks <laughs> out. Uh, we are going to be talking about minigames today. ix four PS- PSV, not PSG nil. That would be a slightly bigger story. Um. Uh, Inter Milan's 1 1 draw with Juve. Uh, El Clásico obviously going to get some talk, but we have to start in the obvious place Manchester United nil, Liverpool 5. We will talk plenty about Manchester United. I don't want to go down that right r- route right away because. As we've talked about before, it's easy to go with the kind of negative, the team that lost first, whereas we should probably give some credit to Liverpool. Joe, how good were they on the day? They seemed excellent. I do think Manchester United played into their hands a little bit. I don't want to start with the loser, though, as I said. So let's talk Liverpool, shall we?
3: This is certainly a things-can-be-two-things situation, right? Manchester United bad, Liverpool good, and Manchester United's mistakes, especially on a couple of those early goals, really did help Liverpool jump out to a lead, and it made Liverpool look better than they were. All of that said, putting four goals past Manchester United in one half and creating chances in the way that Liverpool did – was really impressive. They were moving. Firmino was dropping between the lines. They had uh, James Milner dropping into the left pocket and then he came off and, and there was still rotations in midfield. There was creativity there. Um, I, I, it was interesting to get a look at Ibrahim Konate in, in that center back pairing next to Virgil van Dijk. Not perfect, but he he showed some glimpses and showed some flashes of things that we'd seen from him at Leipzig. So there was an, a nice balance of getting a look at some newer things and also seeing the same classic Klopp Liverpool team that has been so good in the Premier League for so long they pressed really aggressively one thing that that Liverpool really did well was that high defensive pressure Manchester United really struggled to play out of that and Liverpool created chances and created danger from their pressure which is exactly what Klopp wants to do right so this was a a strong performance a strong game plan from Jurgen Klopp and Liverpool and I think they executed really well on the field Taylor.
1: Graham, uh, Salah is obviously going to get a ton of credit. I welcome you to talk about his hat trick. But I thought pretty much everybody had a good day. Uh Keita, who I sort of criticized in their Champions League game for doing good things but then poor things, I thought looked very good until his injury. Uh Henderson with an incredible ball for the fifth goal, I believe it was, but again, solid throughout. Firmino did so many Firmino things, a player that I think doesn't get the love that he probably deserves because he doesn't often score the goals, but I think it's because he's doing so much else. So I just thought so many different solid individual performances and then a comprehensive team performance as well from Liverpool.
2: Yeah you, you've picked out a, a few players from my notes so I'll start with Keita who I thought he definitely deserved some recognition for this performance because um, as you referenced there against Atleti during the week it was at times it was as if he was playing in clown shoes and this was this was a lot better from him. We probably saw his his best qualities. Mine likely played into his hands a little bit. They are not a press-resistant team at all, and Keita is someone who likes to press high. Um, he has he has a little bit of a Fred quality about him in that sense, the Chaos Press, as I like to call it, except he's a lot better at it and also is more press resistant than Fred is. And uh, looking at the Liverpool midfield in particular, I actually thought their midfield started off a little bit careless in the first half. There were there were there were a few times where they gave away possession a little bit cheaply. Um, obviously, I'm I'm you know nitpicking given that they were four 0 up at, at, at time, But I actually felt that the injury to Ilner—not that I'm wishing an injury on any player—but I actually felt that replacing Milner with with Curtis Jones just gave Liverpool an opportunity to be more aggressive. I think Milner is that player who's in that team, going away to Manchester United, a, a, a team that can be dangerous on their day, playing at Old Trafford. Milner was kind of the safety net in that team. And I think after a little while, you know, Liverpool are 2-0 up after, what is it, 15 minutes? They're up 2-0 in this yeah. game it becomes clear that they don't really need that safety net. And so Milner coming off for Jones, who's just a bit more aggressive, provides a little bit more drive. I just thought allowed Liverpool to double down on on their approach in the centre of the pitch. And I also think another midfielder who deserves a bit of credit, if only for the pass for uh, Salah's hat-trick goal, is Jordan Henderson. Yeah, That pass that he plays... Um, I always find it. there's been a lot of, in, in the British media, there's a lot of people, pundits and experts saying, you know, if De Bruyne made yeah. that pass or if Messi p- played that pass would be going on and on about it. I always think that's a strange thing to say because De Bruyne and Messi, those kind of passes, they do them in every game. And so maybe there'd be <laughs> less reason to go on and on about it. And there's been so much talk about that pass from Henderson because he doesn't normally produce that sort of thing. Anyway, it was it was an incredible pass. And while Manatee's defence was... Very easy to to pick open. Uh, Harry Maguire has yeah. the turning circle of the Exxon Valdez. Um, yeah. uh, that pass was still incredible. And so Henderson deserves credit for that. And then Firmino, again, another player that was in my notes, you referenced there. He, for me, is the embodiment of the difference between Klopp's Liverpool and Solskjaer's United. I'm not saying anything that that will be a revelation to anyone listening who knows that Liverpool team, but he is in that team for the benefit of the system. He's a facilitator, he makes the whole thing work. And Salah does what he does in part of because of the work Firmino does. Manny, I know he doesn't play in this game, does what he does because of Firmino. Others in that team that are made better because of the work that Firmino does. Would Solskjaer ever play a player like that? Because to me, he seems like the antithesis of this Man team at the moment. And if we're looking for players on Liverpool's side, I know Salazar, you know, with his three goals, and he's arguably the best player in the world at the moment At the, uh, right now. He's an obvious candidate for the biggest difference maker between these two teams. But I think Firmino is right up there in terms of there's a player for Liverpool who wouldn't get in the United team, who Man
1: need more players like that. So, Joe, Graham mentioned what Ole might do. Let me ask you this. We did an episode about pressing for Soccer 101 last week. You and I have talked many, many times about the merits of pressing and the different styles. Uh, who would you say is the most obvious pressing team? If somebody asked you, like, who's a team I should watch to see how pressing works,
3: who would you say, Joe? Liverpool are a great example, Taylor. I think I, think I would bring them up very quickly in that conversation. Yeah. And would Manchester United be on that list no, no, I mean interesting there 's not enough there 's not enough from them right now. They do press sort of and they they do step higher and they 've had yeah. some success. With that this season, I don't want to take that away from them, but far too often, and we talked about this before, I feel like a little bit uh, that I'm in Groundhog Day, guys. We've talked about this before, um, (laughs) where where one player, uh, sorry, I just made a pop culture reference and Ryan's not here to appreciate me, um, (laughs) so I needed to pause for that. Ryan, I hope you're listening to this back when you're on vacation or whatever the situation is. Be proud of me.
1: You've opened this door, Joe. Have you seen Groundhog Day, or do you just know the concept of Groundhog Day?
3: Okay, Taylor, I've seen parts of Groundhog Day. Thank you very much for exposing me like that. Let's go on to talk more about Manchester United now, shall we? Um so, <laughs> not
1: Manchester bad for a quadruped, United. Joe. That's not bad for a quadruped. All right, on we go.
3: Yes. Manchester United will press, but far too often they get caught in this one man stepping instead of stepping as a unit. In this game, it happened over and over and over again. It was Bruno. Then it was Ronaldo. Then it was Rashford on the left side stepping. And there's not this cohesive structure and unity behind them. And you can't, you can't expect to press as one man in a professional game and actually have success on a consistent basis. It's not, it's not rocket science, right? The person that you're playing against and pressing is likely going to either be good enough to just beat you on their own or they can pass the ball right? And they can pass the ball laterally. And then all of a sudden your pressing is worthless because the person that I just passed to, the person that you just passed to is wide open and there's no one pressing them because your pressing team is not actually pressing as a team. So we're seeing far too much of that right now with Manchester United and it's costing them goals and it's costing them games. And we we got a clear
2: sign of that after just four minutes. That first goal was, you know, I'm not a Man United fan, but watching how that goal unfolded where I think it's Wan-Bissaka steps up too high. Seemingly in the belief that he's pressing high, and I think I might have audibly gone, Oh god, because I could see how this was unfolding. Then Maguire gets pushed up as well because he thinks he's pressing high, but all of a sudden, Liverpool have a three on one where Luke Shaw is getting pulled into the centre because he's been left on his own to defend against a front three, Liverpool's front three, and, and Keita just has the simple finish into the back of the net. It, that goal was almost as bad as the, Taylor, you'll remember, the Istanbul-Besik-Shahir goal in the Champions uh, League last yeah. year, mm-hmm. where it was almost like a glitch, <laughs> where you think, hold on, has some, something's gone wrong. I tweeted at the time, did my net, uh, that, this is during the Liverpool game um, yesterday, I tweeted at the time, did my net stop play or something? Did they Did they hear a whistle? Did, did something go wrong? No, nothing, well, a lot went wrong, but they nothing went wrong in terms of them stopping play. That it was just comical, and Maguire and Shaw, as in particular, uh, you know, I, I said clown shoes uh, performance for for Naby Keita against Atleti. This was this was even worse. This the way that they were they kept on getting in each other's way. Like for the second goal, the way Maguire, I, I, as a reference before, kept getting pulled pulled high up the pitch. Shaw kept getting getting pulled centrally. Um, it, it was an absolute
1: disaster class. I think of it as similar to like the game Mousetrap, uh, a Rube Goldberg machine sort of defense for Manchester United, where one part does one thing, and as soon as that part does what it's supposed to do, the next part uh, occurs. Yeah. And it's basically, a, here's your definition. A chain reaction type machine or contraption intentionally designed to perform a simple task in an indirect and overly complicated way. And if you're Manchester <laughs> United, that ends at a Liverpool goal. That's oh. what I think of as, Ma- as, Man- as Manchester United's uh, approach to the press, which begs the obvious question, Graham. Where do you think stand for Oleg Gunnar Solskjaer at time of recording? So last night he was saying it was the lowest he had ever felt as a Manchester United player or manager, stays after and signs autographs, pundits. I would say sort of uniformly say he is not gonna be sacked, but yeah. this is the biggest like, you know, warning sign. It's a sign that things won't work. And even though he's not gonna be sacked thing like the writing is on the wall as of this morning he is still in charge but it does seem like there are some rumblings from old Trafford.
2: yeah so when i woke up this morning when, whenever there's a there's a there's a hint of a manager leaving a big club and i mean like a real big club so i'm talking like liverpool man utd chelsea city and probably the two spanish
1: oh, Graham, spanish clubs I love you. Thank you for not being Ryan Bailey and, and leaving Manchester United out of that conversation. Because that's absolutely a thing he would have done.
2: Oh yeah, that that, that is his calling card.
1: <laughs>
2: um yeah, so anytime there's a there's a managerial change at one of these big clubs, because of my, my job as like a as a blogger or a writer, I kinda of brace myself for having a busy day. Um, you know, people will ask for articles a little bit quicker or, or, or so on. When I woke woke up this morning, I, I wasn't braced at all because I didn't think Soja would be leaving his job today. However, as the day has gone on here, there there's there's been some reports, um so Mark Ogden of ESPN, Jamie Jackson of The Guardian, and Samuel Luckhurst of the Manchester Evening News seem to be all reporting something similar and that, that thing is that Richard Arnold, who is widely seen as the, the next in line to replace Ed Woodward, who leaves United at the end of the year. So he's kind of already taking over a lot of those responsibilities. He's in, he's in discussions with Joe Glazer, who is in Florida today. Um, they're in discussions over what Solskjaer's future is. And my United have gone quiet on queries over what his future is, which is unusual for them because they are normally very quick and have been very quick to always say Solskjaer is our long-term manager. We've just given him a long-term contract. That hasn't happened today. What's more, there are also rumblings that, that Conte is starting to be considered, that while they accept Conte might not be a perfect fit, I personally can't shake the feeling that he would be a disaster at Manchester United. As good, as a, manager, a, good a manager as he is, and he undoubtedly is, a great manager, I don't think it's a good fit. However, mine are either United, uh, according to these reports, accepting that if a change is to be made now, um, then Conte might be the best option.
1: Graham, like I know, you can't really give me insight into the inner inner workings of Manchester United. But one thing I did feel, because I agree with you, it doesn't seem like they want to to sack Ole. I think because then. Obvious questions have to be asked about giving him a contract extension and and sort of how have we gotten to this point. But I also think it's because midseason it's admitting, yep, okay, like we've got to reset things and there's no Thomas Tuchel out there. So it does feel like it would require a full reset and not a let's change things up midseason and see where we go from here. My question for you, might this also be the case that Manchester United are aware of? That if they just come out and say like, yep, Ole's our guy after this result, that is not going to go well. That is not going to look good. And so they sort of necessarily have to wait a little bit of time before saying that he is their manager just to give the appearance that they are considering other options. Because I'm with you. Antonio Conte does not seem like an ideal fit, certainly mid season, at least.
2: Yeah, yeah, definitely, and and that's a that's a fair point. That could be what's happening. Manchester United are uh, um, they're they're a club that likes to um, massage things in a PR sense. So it wouldn't surprise me if there's a cynical ploy going on now, where as you say, they are just waiting. Today is oh, we're considering his his, his position, so that fans feel like they're they are being heard, and then tomorrow he's you know it's, it, he's safe. I, I, Look, this could all change very quickly, but he might have been sacked in the time that we've been recording. Um, but my prediction is that United. I don't think they've considered who might replace Solskjaer until now. A genu- I think their backing of Solskjaer has been genuine. You hear some clubs saying, oh, we're backing the manager and you, and you know they're lining up the replacement uh, like Lampard and, and Tuchel, like Chelsea were for a long time. I think United haven't considered it. And so I think now they are they're considering who might be able to come in, who's available, who they might be able to get. I think that process takes longer than it takes a a few days. And then I think if there's another bad result against Spurs this weekend, that could be the point that Solskjaer gets canned. But it just feels like United don't really have a plan. I I always think the best-run clubs always have a contingency plan. I would imagine that City, even City, as much as Guardiola is the king at the Etihad Stadium, they probably have a plan of who they go for if if things were to go badly wrong or if he had to step down for maybe a non-football reason or something like that. It just feels like Man United don't have that at all.
1: Joe, we've been both sort of down, uh, Graham and I both been sort of down on the idea of Antonio Conte taking over midseason. I think neither of us would argue that Ole is going to turn this thing around and figure it out. Is there anybody that you think would make sense for Manchester United or maybe more broadly, if the Glazers were coming to you and saying, Joe, what's something that needs to change? What would you do, Joe? Uh, I'm asking you that very question, Mr. Lowry. Are there things that you think aren't working that could easily be changed? Is it
3: signing a player?
1: Is it bringing in a new manager? What, what What's one thing you would do?
3: At this point, bringing in a new manager would be at the top of my list. And it's been yeah. at the top of that list for a while. We've talked about, would bringing in a defensive midfielder help and change this team? And to an extent, yes. But I think I likened that to a Band-Aid on some sort of much larger injury. I'm not a doctor, folks. so I don't I don't know what that injury is going to be. But I think bringing in new blood in the coaching sense is important because there's, there's a disconnect, clearly, between what Ole theoretically wants this team to be doing and what they're actually doing on the field. And I think there are managerial options out there that are at least somewhat available that would really help this team and give them much more of an identity. One name that we've discussed before is Eric Ten Hag, who we'll talk more about later um, with Ajax, who has done a phenomenal job with that Ajax team so far this season. That's a name that is an interesting one, certainly maybe not one that would be incredibly interested in this job right off the bat. But there's some nuance to that, and I don't know what Eric Tenthogg is thinking as far as what the next step in his career should be. Luis Enrique is another name, um, coach the Spanish national team at the Euros, obviously has a pretty strong pedigree at the club level as well. He's a guy who can give this team some sort of identity, and and that I think is a huge thing that's lacking, and and that's really holding Manchester United back right now.
1: Graham, the decision-making for Manchester United – Like, not to kind of beat a very dead horse at this point, but it it always feels like it's a redirect and sometimes, like, too strongly so. So you have David Moyes is, I guess, like, Scottish, but yeah, he's young with the Premier League experience. But when that doesn't work, you go for, we want experience at a world-class managerial level, Louis van Hall, then that's not working. Okay, we want the proven entity when it comes to the Premier League. We want Jose Mourinho. That's not working. Everybody's too sad. Okay, we need happy. Let's get Ole. Ole's in. Okay, we don't run enough. Uh Conte, get Conte. He'll make them run. Like, it feels like it's this sort of swing to swing to swing to swing. Yeah. And I would much prefer a more comprehensive approach. We're going to talk about Ajax later on and just how dominant they look and, and the many reasons for that. Like, I, I put it to you, Graham. It's a giant question. I don't expect you to have a succinct answer. Uh, like, if, if Manchester United wanted to try to replicate a system like Ajax, or even like Barcelona, but like sticking with Ajax for this analogy, would be like, high intensity, there is the pressing, but there is possession, there is positional interchange, there's lots of different tactical ideas, but a lot of that is rooted in the history of the club and in the academy and everything that they have experienced and won. Like, how do you go about importing that sort of philosophy? I would argue Liverpool did it with pressing under Klopp because that was sort of Klopp's philosophy. He was the one who was going to incorporate and pressing, and he did. If Manchester United want to have a sort of structural change, how do you think they could do that? Well, first of all, I think you need people and
2: structures in place that are designed to last longer than single managerial tenures. Interesting. So, yeah, that might not be much of a revelation there, but you know, you look at Liverpool, for example, and I know Klopp, he accelerated everything, and now everything is kind of built around him. But there was an acceptance before Klopp with Brendan Rodgers of a way that Liverpool wanted to play, and I know there are differences between the two, but Rodgers and Klopp, you know, there are there are some similarities in the way that they they like their teams to to play football. You at Manchester United so far in, in the in the post-Ferguson age haven't had that continuity. I think this is going to be a real test when, when it, when the time comes that Solskjaer is sacked and they need to find a replacement. This will be a real test of the, the progress that my knight have made off the pitch because to, to the to the outsider, to you and I, it does look like they have made some progress. You know, they have John Murtaugh, who isn't a director of football, but that is his kind of de facto position at Manchester United now. They have Darren Fletcher as his uh, kind of assistant. You know, Woodward has taken a step back. Richard Arnold, who I mentioned there, who is kind of... Um, the new Ed Woodward, he's more focused on the commercial side of things. So the football side of the club has, there's been a separation there from the rest of the club, and that that hasn't hasn't happened before until now. But this will be the real test of whether they actually have the freedom to make to make an appointment that. It fits with whatever identity they have put in place. Um, I'm not sure what identity they've put in place, but maybe behind the scenes, you know, they haven't actually had a chance to appoint a manager yet. So maybe this will be the first time that Murtaugh and Fletcher and and that's new coaching staff. They've hired a load of data analysts at Manchester United in the last season or two. Maybe this is when we'll start to get a hint of that. Um, and and that sort of thing just has to trickle through the whole club. So you know, it has to go all the way through the youth levels. You know, Ajax have this. Um, I it's the best example of this but Barcelona have it as well you know when players are coming through up through, through the, the youth system they, it doesn't take much time to put to, for them to adapt to the first team because they're they're used to that style of play you know the manager at senior team level is pretty much ideologically the same as under 21 under 18 whatever the, the the age group is you see that at Barcelona with players like Gavi who this season has come into that first team and all of a sudden he is a a key figure so it's it's stuff like that 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 um, Manchester United kind of need to focus on. There's a lot of talk of, on what the United way is. I don't know what the United way is. It seemed to me if, during Ferguson's time, and I guess going back to Busby, it's just it can be defined as attacking football. I'm not sure that's a that's a clear enough uh, distinction <laughs> no? in, in modern football now. Uh, so that might need some refinement because I do think Solskjaer did make he has made some progress in restoring a little bit of the soul of that of that club maybe Taylor you can speak a little bit more than I can about that but Man United are a, you know they are a, they have been a fast and furious attacking side he they do feel a little bit more like Manchester United but now's the time when they really need to nail down what sort of club and what sort of team they are
1: I think they feel like Manchester United when they have those those big wins or those fight backs against Atalanta that are rooted in like, let's just throw everything at them and see what happens. But those results are so often inconsistent in space between losses or uninspiring results. And it, and it doesn't seem like there is that sort of comprehensive plan. It feels in some ways like they're just kind of going back to what worked under Ferguson, trying to replicate that. But without the whole thing of multiple decades of experience managing at the top level and winning at the top level. Like, I, I think some of that mystique is lost. It made me wonder if they went the Liverpool route when they sacked, uh, uh, Roy Hodgson and Manchester United asked Sir Alex Ferguson if he would return for the remainder of this season. I don't think he would. I think that would be a bad idea, both for him for health reasons, but also because I'm not sure how often going back to the well ends up working out. But if they did, it did make me wonder, like, would they get better results because of the prestige, the reputation he has, the sort of belief in him that the players would have? Would that automatically turn things around? Or Joe, would it just make Paul Pogba even angrier because he once again wouldn't make the team?
3: (laughs) I think you you hit the nail on the head with that second one, Taylor. There are some structural changes that need to happen. I think there needs to be, again, new blood in this team from the coaching perspective it's it's a mess right now for Manchester United. And I think putting another Band-Aid on is not going to actually get to the root of the problem. Uh, and, and I think the problem really does need to be addressed. And, and maybe it's starting to happen behind the scenes. We don't really know. But I, I think they need to be in a stage of transition, even if it's uncomfortable for a while as they look to progress as a club. Joe, can I can I
2: disagree slightly? I, I, I think Man Utd are in a, an, a pretty decent position for whoever... Comes in. I don't know if that's maybe a slightly different point to the to the one you were making, but sure. I think that if you get um if you get the right manager in there who ha- who has a, a vision of what that team should be and what players don't fit that vision, I think that's a big problem for Manchester United at the moment. Is it feels like Solskjaer is trying to fit everyone into the same team. It might be a Tuchel style situation when he went into Chelsea, where the new manager needs to make some difficult decisions and some players just don't fit into that team but if they can find the right find the right coach and i i do think they need a a strong midfield anchor to come in in the next transfer window i think that team's in a pretty decent position like it's not so long ago that we were all maybe joe wasn't but i think Ryan and i were anyway <laughs> saying that this this man United team are good enough to challenge for the premier league title i do think that there are some signings you know i think ronaldo has changed the focus a little bit i think in in retrospect you maybe wouldn't make that signing uh, nostalgia was not a strong enough reason to go and make him the highest paid player at the club and um, but even with ronaldo there that there is there is a good team there and i do think my united one of the biggest things um i know i'm kind of rambling a little bit here but with Solskjaer, man united need to be careful they don't unpick the good work that he has done the longer they wait the more that the the good the, the the good work that he's done will will start to fade the the key thing is they need someone to come in who can take the club further and i think whoever comes in is going to be in a better position to when Solskjaer came into my United after Mourinho. And that that's at the point, at, at that point I said, my United are a mess. They're a complete mess at this point. I don't think, I'm not saying they don't have problems. I'm not saying they don't have things to address. But they are in a better position than they were three years ago. And I think a, a good manager will fix a lot of the problems that they have.
1: So I would love to be more in your camp, Graham. I think I err more on the side of Joe's logic. But let me ask you this. Like, who would be the manager or the style to emulate with this current team? If they did change it up and bring in a manager, like, what is the style that you think they could play with the personnel they have? Because maybe it could be pressing just with a bit more training. Maybe it is just do what always done and have them play more on the counter and be okay with that. Is it just possession dominant and suffocating your team with passing? Like, what would be the way you think this current team could progress?
2: Yeah, it's, it's a good question. I don't think United will ever be able to play, certainly not with this group, I don't think they're going to be able to play gegenpress press in, in the way that Liverpool do. I just think they have too many players who, who don't, who are naturally not good pressers. You know, Ronaldo's the obvious one, but I don't think Mason Greenwood's a particularly good presser of the ball. Fernandez, <laughs> at least he tries, but there was points in this game where he was pressing the goalkeeper for, you know, for um, I was going to say for goal kicks, not for goal kicks, for, for clearances out from the back. And you're just thinking, you don't understand what a press is. <laughs> you think that's a press. So I, I don't think Fernandes... He, he might have the energy in the way that Ronaldo doesn't have or, or he the legs, but he doesn't have the intelligence. I don't think Pogba is a particularly good presser either. So I don't think they'll ever be able to play like Liverpool. I equally don't think that they can keep possession in the way that the you know city do and suffocate opponents or spain and that would be the biggest difference is luis enrique came in obviously his spain team or maybe the the most heavily possession-based team in club or uh, international football at the moment so that would be a big difference so you're kind of looking to i know this this is sitting on the fence but you're kind of looking to split the difference in some way so maybe like a Brendan Rodgers type team you want to control games with your use of the ball but still retain that ability to get in behind because if you look at Manchester United where they're, they're, they're at their best and where they have their best options it's in the wide forwards area you know Rashford, Martial Sancho, Greenwood you know that's as good as any squad in the Premier League and that's another reason why I think Conte would be a bad fit for Manchester United is don't hire a manager who basically doesn't use wide forwards he uses width uh, in the wing back areas you know but with a, with kind of that back three with wing backs so it, I think you have to kind of Split a difference between kind of Klopp, the two two ends of the spectrum
1: between Klopp and uh, and Guardiola. A very fair answer. Maybe unfair is that you stole Joe Lowry's position sitting on that fence. Joe, do you feel (laughs) at all threatened by that, or are you hopping off to make, like, a strong, compelling argument for why it needs to be Pellegrino Matarazzo or Jesse Martin?
3: (laughs) Oh, no. There's there's room on the fence for both of us, guys. Okay.
1: All right. All right. That's fair. Well, I think there might still be room for a couple other uh, conversations in this episode. We've gone very long. I'm guessing that was expected, but we will be back to talk about the other big, big games from this past weekend. Welcome back. During the break, I was corrected by Mr. Joe Lowry. Ix won 5-0 over PSV. I hope Liverpool haven't also added a few more goals since we uh, finished recording no, no, no. that segment. Uh, <laughs> it could have been. And I really do appreciate that they sort of let off in the final 30 minutes of that game and simultaneously that but, hurt even more. Yeah, I was
2: going to say, do you appreciate <laughs> that? That feels nope. like
1: an even greater embarrassment. <laughs> Let's talk about Spain. Real Sociedad <laughs> got a point from their 2-2 draw at Atletico Madrid, which was enough to put... uh uh Sociedad, top of the table. I had it written as them, and then I realized that's going to be vague, because you would think it would be Atleti, but it's actually Sociedad. Sevilla took third with three points from their win over Levante, but it was El Clasico weekend, and El Clasico is what we're going to discuss. Real Madrid. Got the win on the road with goals from David Alaba. Lucas Vasquez proving enough. Despite a late goal from Sergio Aguero, the obvious question, the obvious starting point. Was I the only one who forgot that David Alaba had signed for Real Madrid? Did anyone else <laughs> have that moment of like, oh right, he's there. He is very good. And he backed that up with a goal. Am I alone in that one?
3: Yeah yeah I, I, one,
1: <laughs> I had a few of those this weekend including when gutta was in the starting 11 for psv and i had to remember that that had oh yeah as well. yeah
2: that is that is one i had that one I, I, so it wasn't really until i saw him on
1: the bench when he got yeah. when he got taken off and i was like oh yeah Mario Gutza plays for psv <laughs> all right since both of you like know things and stuff let's instead talk about how this game played out joe i I feel like this game was about what I expected, which was interesting, always captivating when it comes to a Classico, but at the same time, kind of dull. What do you think kept this Classico from being a classic? Is it just the departure of some of the star names that has been discussed uh, ad nauseum, or were there other factors, or do you disagree? Did you find this game particularly interesting?
3: No, I don't disagree. This game, and El Classico in general, has fallen pretty precipitously, right? Uh, I think some of the factors behind that, of course, the talent leaving. When your game doesn't have Lionel Messi in it, it's not as good as it was before. So that's, that's a big factor. And then the downfall, especially of Barcelona, but to an extent, both of these organizations, both of them in... Pretty steep financial trouble, both of them making some questionable signings and financial decisions over the last X number of years. And we see that especially with Barcelona, of course. This is not the same Barcelona team. Ronald Koeman, we've talked about it over and over again. There are uncomfortable parallels between Barcelona and Manchester United in how these clubs have been run, and and for Barcelona especially, how they're being coached right now. There's more buzz around Ole and Ole leaving. We kind of went through that buzz already with Ronald Koeman, and it seems like it's not happening because of financial constraints that Barca have and and having to pay Ronald Koeman essentially severance for letting him go. There's there's so many problems here that would not be occurring in a well-run club, and we see that behind the scenes, and we also see that, Out on the field. Barcelona started this game controlling possession. They were counter-pressing well. I thought they started okay in the first 10 minutes. And then Real Madrid start to threaten on the counter. Barca have that chance from Des that would have put them 1-0 up. He puts it over the bar. And then David Alaba gets his fantastic goal for Real Madrid. I I have a slight beef. Taylor, you brought up beef with Casey Keller. I don't Mm -hmm. remember who was commentating this game. But someone mentioned, you know, he's about the last player you would expect to score a goal Ian like Dark that. and Steve McManaman. Yeah, that's just not true, right? David Alaba gets forward <laughs> all the time. He was playing yeah. late in games, and we all thought he should have been playing higher up the field more often for Austria at the Euros. But for Bayern Munich and for Austria, he's, uh, he does get forward, and he does step forward. So I was, I was slightly taken aback by that comment. But Barcelona could not keep up with Real Madrid at a certain point in this game. And, and really, from an organizational standpoint and an on-field standpoint, that shouldn't be all that surprising. I thought I thought Alaba was was the best player on the pitch.
2: Just looking beyond his goal as well, it was it was so good. The camera angle behind the shot is is fantastic, and I'm I'm totally with you, Joe. When that ball gets fed out to Alaba, I'm thinking that is one of the players you yeah. want in that position. Um, and you, you kind of knew it was probably going to end up in the back of the net. But we, we all know what Alaba does. You know, he gives you a way to play out from the back. He gets forward in the way that in this match he's playing as a centre back. Not many centre backs really do that. Uh, apart from uh, Kieran Tierney, of course, the greatest <laughs> of course, at it. Of course. Um, but yeah, th- this this match and his performance just crystallized for me how the lines between Barcelona and Real Madrid have been blurred in recent years. And I did a piece for, for Eurosport um, on Alaba, on this subject. So not so long ago, Alaba probably would have been a Barcelona player in the way that he can play a number of different positions in different ways, the way he's always in control. That's one of the things about Alaba that is very impressive. To me, this was his first Classico. Yeah, I know this fixture isn't what it used to be. Yeah, I know there were some empty seats. By the way, a lot of nervousness in Barcelona about those empty seats and how many there would be because the way they sell their tickets is slightly different. Um, you know, it's, it's a very high proportion of socios that are in the stadium and a lot of them just haven't been turning up recently. So for them to get 86,000, I think, was more than they expected. Um, so, yeah, it's still a high pressure env- environment for Albany's first Classico away to, to Barcelona. And he just kind of strolled it. And I just think what a what a brilliant piece of business by Real Madrid to, to get him. I know some of their signings recently, Kof Ed and Hazard, haven't been that that good. But getting Alaba in on a on a free transfer, I know he's on big wages, but nonetheless, on a free transfer in his peak years is a brilliant piece of business. And it's he would have been a he would have been a perfect Barcelona player. Looking at their defence at the moment, which is a hot mess, he would have he would steady that defense quite a bit. Even though he's not it, the defensive side of Alaba's game is maybe not the best side of his game, but he would still be a a, a good presence back there for, the, for uh, Barcelona.
1: Graham, let's take a, a longer moment to look at that Barcelona defense and Barcelona as a whole for a second, because the narrative seems to be that uh, the two teams were relatively evenly matched, but that Ancelotti outcoached Ronald Koeman. Uh, Dermot Corrigan, writing for The Athletic, had a whole piece about that. Uh, where are you on that, uh, that argument? What do you think Ronald Koeman tried to do in this game? What do you think Carlo Ancelotti did in this game?
2: Yeah, I might have some trouble uh, explaining what Cumin was trying to
1: do. <laughs> Joe, ex- you're welcome <laughs> to jump in. I'm going to be quiet for a while.
2: I can, I can, ex- I can explain what he did and how it didn't work. So I thought he got it wrong with using Ans through, through the middle with Memphis on the left wing. I, I don't really understand the, the thinking. Maybe Joe has some 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 thoughts on that, but. Despite Barcelona seeing more of the ball in the first half, which was very much Real Madrid's uh, at their invitation, that was what they wanted to do. But despite Barcelona seeing loads of the ball, they they couldn't get the ball to answer. He was just isolated for the first half. Any time the, the ball was fed into him, he had kind of Ederson Militao and. Who else was playing centre-back? Oh, Alaba, um, kind of around him. Yeah, you forgot um, him. You forgot <laughs> him. <laughs> it's because he's just everywhere, uh-huh. Taylor. I was thinking, uh-huh. did he play left-back? but No, he, he played the centre-back. But, um, yeah, so it was therefore unsurprising to see kind of and make the, the change for the start of the second half. He introduced uh, Coutinho for Mungessa, went to a 4-2-3-1, pushed Dest back into um, his kind of more familiar right-back position. Um, but then from not being able to get the ball into Ansu in the first half, Barcelona then funneled pretty much every attack through the middle in the second half. And that suited Real Madrid. So it, I, I'm not entirely sure what Coman or Barcelona were, were trying to do. And Ancelotti, looking at his game plan, um, by the way, Ancelotti had never won a, Ligue, a La Liga clasico until this weekend, which given how successful he was at Real Madrid previously is quite... Quite incredible. But his whole game plan seemed to be about making it difficult for Barcelona to play through them. It was all about ensuring that Real Madrid weren't exposed in transition. It was a pretty simplistic game plan and, and it requires Real Madrid to be pretty sharp in the counter-attack. And they were through Benzema, Rodrigo, Vinicius, who all had good matches. But it doesn't need to be that complex a game plan to get the better of Barcelona at the moment. And it was enough.
1: Joe, we did have the, the Ryan Bailey theory in effect uh, this weekend, which is that when Tony Cruz and Luka Modric play well. I would add when Casemiro also looks solid, Real Madrid will never lose, and they did not this weekend. Uh were you impressed by that midfield pairing as we so often are, or were there other players from Madrid who you thought stood out?
3: I was impressed by yeah, by by Tony Cruz and Luka Modric, and, and Casemiro to an extent as well. The player that stood out to me most for Real Madrid, though, was Vinicius on the left wing. Yeah. He he has been Electric this season for Real Madrid. He he is he really is Graham. The way that he's getting on the ball and actually turning his on-ball actions into meaningful somethings, into meaningful chances, or at least into drawing defenders and then laying the ball off. There are several moments in this game where Vinicius is just outplaying Barcelona almost by himself. He gets into the box a couple of times, really bright on the dribble. There's this moment in the 55th minute where he's over on the left side, going towards the corner or somewhere in that vicinity. And he draws Dest and Busquets over and, and plays with them for a minute and then slips a ball right between them into Toni Kroos. And it is just absurd, right? And he probably should have let go of the ball sooner in that sequence. And you could say that a number of times for Vinicius throughout his game and throughout his Real Madrid career. But he is so much fun to watch and he is actually turned into an incredibly productive and I think effective attacking player for Real Madrid.
1: I don't have a ton else to say about this game, except for that, Graham Ruffin, you had uh, some jokes this weekend, which I think you were slightly referencing and slightly giggling about when it comes to Sergino Dest, starting at right wing, ending up at right fullback. I believe your comment was, turns out he was a fullback all along, (laughs) something like that. Uh, Joe and I talk a lot about Sergino Dest, both for uh, the national team and for Barcelona and everything he does on the weekends. Uh, Graham, I wanted to get your thoughts on Dest because you have less of a vested interest more of a neutral observer, but you're obviously still watching Barcelona. Where are you on Sergio Dest as an attacking player versus a defending player? He
2: obviously has his flaws as a, as a defensive player. Um, and I can understand why Coleman has used him as the, the right-sided forward. At, at the risk of repeating myself, I think I might have said this on the last week's Weekend Review, but Barcelona don't really have anyone to play on that right side. They need someone to give them a, a, a bit of an outlet. Obviously, Ansu and Memphis are the attacking hub of this team, but... Ansu likes to cut in from the left side. He has Alba to overlap on, on that side. But Real Madrid don't really have that kind of same dynamic on on the right side. So I I can understand why Coleman has used him in that position. But that finish in the first half from him where it, it was a complete sitter, he should score. And I think at that point put Barcelona ahead. I think it was nil-nil at that time. Yeah. Um just kind of proof that he is a defender by trade really um even though he does have those defensive flaws I I'm a big fan of Sergino And I remember we had a discussion on it might have been on a listener questions podcast a while ago where we were asked you know what American player gets onto any roster or any team in European soccer and kind of a lot of the discussion focused on Pulisic and and uh you know McKinney Gio Reyna it's Dest for me like I, I am a big fan of him I think the fact that Coman really trusts him. He's one of the few players at Barcelona right now who you would say Coman. I'm not going to say he gets the best out of him, but there is a, there is a relationship there between Coman and Dest, and, and that's why he is put in these slightly unusual positions. He's also been played on the left side this season, and he tends to do a decent job, but his best position is still at right-back, and I think we saw that in the last international break as well with the the, the US game against uh, Costa Rica, where obviously he scores that 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 brilliant goal. If I were American, I would be hoping that Berhalter is not going to take a cue from Coman and play him as a right-sided forward. Uh, right back is the place for him.
1: All right. Graham Ruthven has waited on Serginho Dest. Uh, Joe, instead of asking you about Dest, I will ask you about our next game. Inter Milan 1, Juventus 1 in the Derby d'Italia. Napoli kept their spot at the top of the table, but dropped points for the first time this season in a nil-nil draw with Roma. That allowed AC Milan to draw a level on points, and now they sit second on goal difference after their win uh, Saturday versus Bologna. But the rivalry day continued, as we already talked about, Inter Milan with Juve, and Juve slash VAR. I would say you could put them as a 1-2 combo versus Inter Milan. A battle to a 1-1 draw. Joe... I I don't want to go right back to the same well as I did with Madrid and Barcelona, but this was another game that I had high hopes for. And I think for different reasons, it did not end up
3: being as thrilling as enthralling. Where were you on that one? I struggled a little bit with this game, and I don't know if it's because I watched it almost directly after I watched Manchester United-Liverpool, and, and because Liverpool played so quickly and so aggressively in that first half, in the, in the beginning part of the second yeah. half, that every other game just looked slow after that. But the first line in my notes for this Inter-Juve game is both teams looked kind of slow in this game, to be honest. That's exactly what I wrote down. There wasn't there wasn't a ton here, and part of that could be with how Juve set up under Allegri in this game. And... and by and large, this entire season, they are not the same team that they were under Pirlo, where they actually were were kind of fun, even though Pirlo was derided a bit. A lot of their numbers are down this season. Their possession numbers are down, certainly, but their attacking production is down. Their XG is down. Their expected goals allowed is down. Almost everything is down under Allegri right now. I think that kind of was borne out in this game. Yes, Juve won the XG battle, but the penalty played a huge part in that XG total for them in this game over Inter. It just, it was slow. Juve set up on the break and, and they actually set up without many really capable counterattacking players. I mean, they had Kulusevski, and they had Bernadeski. Bernadeski has to come off early and then you get Bentancur in there and then you really are missing more of a counterattacking presence in the midfield three. And so it just, it, it didn't add up to a thrilling game for me. There were tactics, there were good moments, but Taylor, I think we landed in a similar spot on this one.
1: And yeah, Graham, no Dybala, no Chiesa in that starting eleven. Do you feel like this was Allegri playing it a little bit safe?
2: Uh, Allegri and I are going to have a problem if Chiesa is going to uh, <laughs> be on the bench <laughs> for any more matches. Uh, the strangest thing about Chiesa being on the on the bench for this match was that th- this looked to be a match, a, a, a game uh, that would have suited him perfectly. This was, this was a game, a, a, an opponent that, you know, would have been exposed by kind of the direct run-in and, and the pace that Chiesa has. And this, looking at the match as a whole, taking it back to that, this felt like a match between two teams that are still figuring out exactly w- what they are this season. Um, we saw things from both teams that we've seen in pretty much every game they've played so far this season, from Juventus struggling with the opposition press in midfield to Inter being pretty sloppy in defence. Inter, I feel like Inter is a developing story. At the start of the season... I remember talking about Inzaghi coming in and and basically his system and his approach being very similar to Conte's. But over time, it feels like they are becoming a different side to the one that we saw last season. Um, they're becoming more expansive going forward, but they, they look pretty shaky at the back. Um, Inter, Conte's team was obviously built on defensive uh, resolution. But I think I'm right in saying Inter haven't kept a clean sheet in Serie A since the the first day. Of, of the season, and that 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 just made it even stranger to me that Allegri went so cautious for this game. Rather than trying to get in behind Inter with players like Chiesa, they played in front of the Inter defense. Rather than playing Locatelli in a slightly more advanced role where he can influence things in the final third, he was the guy who was kind of holding things together in the center of the pitch, not particularly well, might I add. <laughs> and and the midfield unit was was the Juventus midfield unit I'm talking about was. Was just lacking in kind of and everything balance cohesion con- control and I think that that midfield has been a problem for Juventus the last two seasons and and it was everything was uh, that they've had an issue with was clear in this match and if you contrast that to the midfield unit that Inter had which was maybe where their performance in this game was at its best you know Brozovic pinning things together in midfield you have Nicolò Barella who is just Energy, yep, <laughs> uh, is how I would define him. And then uh, Ch- and then Chilinoglu, who is the creator and the goal threat, obviously has his strike um, from distance is what creates the the the, the Zeko rebound chance from which he scores. So like that was that was the biggest contrast between the two teams. Was Juventus still haven't got a grip on what their midfield is, and Inter for all their problems that they're they're having, and they're having some problems this season now under Inzaghi. That midfield is still where they're at their best. But you're right, looking at Chiesa, Specifically, I I didn't really understand what was going on there. Juventus were pretty disjointed in attack throughout this match, and
1: I think Chiesa being, being on the pitch from the start would have helped that. I think it's interesting that Allegri has the cachet he has. Not interesting in a like he shouldn't have it, but that it does give him some flexibility to take his time figuring this team out. Because I think back to Sarri, I think back to Pirlo, and if they made some of the mistakes that were made in this game, I think they would be getting a ton of criticism, whereas Allegri, less so. For example, Joe mentioning the uh injury, Bernardeski, it looks like maybe separates a shoulder, maybe dislocates his shoulder, uh, but as he's being kind of walked off the pitch after getting a long period of treatment, I'm telling the listeners who didn't see this game this, I'm guessing both of you all spotted this, Bernadeschi says like, no, 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 I don't want to be subbed off yet, give me a minute to figure things out. They give him a minute, uh, and in that minute, uh Juve are able to score, or uh, uh, Inter are able to score because Juve are down a, a player. Uh And then they end up having to make the change. Benton Corps comes on after the goal is scored. And I just, I, I have to believe that if that were Pirlo, who had waited to make a change, it would be a ton of talk about his inexperience and how he doesn't quite know what to do in the moment, and he didn't want to, ch- like change up his team too early, whereas with Allegri, I think it's it's just more so like, yeah, he's been here before, he's gotten wins, we'll figure it out, it will be fine. And maybe that's the presence that Juve need right now. I think that's a great
3: point, Taylor. I think we see coaches through a bias sometimes, and and maybe it's not Unfair to do that because Allegri does have a lot more managerial experience than Pirlo, for example. But I think these these coaches' past resumes certainly colors how we talk about them. And to go in maybe a little bit more on Allegri, this UV team has not been good this season, Taylor. Like I brought up some of those underlying numbers, but even just looking at the table, they're in sixth right now on 15 points from nine games. They're eight points behind Napoli and, and AC Milan at the top of the table in Syria. There's a gap already pretty early on in this season. Nine games is both early and also long enough for us, I think, to start drawing conclusions about these teams. Yes, you want to look at Juve when they have Chies and maybe when they have Dybala in the lineup. And we're not seeing that in a game like this. But still, this Juve team has not started well so far in 2021.
1: Uh, any other thoughts on Inter 1, Juve 1? We haven't talked much about the penalty. We haven't talked a ton about Timone Zage, who got the red card, but I also think uh, for having Mateo Darmian instead of Ashraf Hakimi, for having Dzeko, uh already scoring as many goals as he did last season. This season, uh, it has been some impressive performances from Inter, but I think it's Graham said, not maybe the consistency required yet. Any other thoughts from either of you on this one?
2: Not really. I think we probably covered a lot. You know, it's... Uh... These are teams that are figuring things out this season. I'll be interested, by the time these two teams face each other again in Serie A, I think we'll know a lot more about them
1: both at, at, at that point. And we will certainly be reviewing that game when they do meet again. But for now, we're going to take one more break. Then we're going to talk Ajax 19, PSV nil. Just Ajax 5. Just Ajax 5.
2: This episode is supported by Season 3 of FX's Welcome to Wrexham.
1: So get timeless looks with modern comfort from MAC Weldon. Go to MacWeldon.com and get 20% off your first order with promo code T-S-S. That's M-A-C-K-W-E-L-D-O-N.com, promo code T-S-S to get 20% off your first
0: order. Thank you to Mac Weldon for sponsoring today's episode. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before?
1: All right, gentlemen, we are back. Final game to be discussed, Ajax 5 PSV 0. Uh, Joe's finally got his wish. We're going to analyze a full (laughs) Ajax match. (laughs) Okay, let's start there. Joe, why are you so excited about IX this season
3: or every season? I'm not really sure how excited you often are about Ajax. No, mostly this season because they've been phenomenal, right? They are maybe the story from an on-field perspective. They're not the story in terms of managerial drama or backroom drama or anything like that. But in terms of what they're putting out on the field, Ajax have been one of the best teams in all of Europe, not just in the Champions League, not just in any one particular area. No, they've been playing at a level that is at least in the general area of... The elite European teams, the teams that spend more money than they do and play in bigger atmospheres, although the atmosphere for Ajax is phenomenal, play in bigger situations with more eyes on them. Ajax have been right up there with all of those teams. They scored four goals against Borussia Dortmund midweek in the Champions League. They've been very good in that competition, and they've been excellent in the league as well. They're top of the table in the Netherlands right now. It's, it's just so many things that have impressed me about this squad under Eric Ten Hag that, yes, I am glad we are finally talking about them.
2: Joe, sorry to, I know we're going to talk about this match specifically, but looking at the, the broad overview of Ajax this season, am I right to to think I see a lot of Bayern Munich in the way that they play? In the way that they're comfortable in having a double pivot in the centre of the pitch? that The way that they kind of have four and four or five attackers ahead at of the ball, but it yet it doesn't feel like there's there's much kind of an, an imbalance, the way there's always runners looking to to break the lines. The way that they're keen to get to the byline, how many times did we see that in in this match? (laughs) Uh, People get into the byline. The way that they're so they can control games with the ball at at their feet, but they also have this option to be a bit more direct through Halar. Who uh, Halar? Sorry, Sebastian Halar, who is in my eyes kind of the Ivorian Lewandowski. Um, Like, are are there comparisons there, or or am I talking rubbish?
3: No, I don't think you're talking rubbish at all, Graham. Uh, wow, I got to use the word rubbish today, guys. I'm so happy. Uh, <laughs> there are similarities. In terms of shape, yes, that's a great comparison. The 4-2-3-1, they're both fluid, right? For Bayern Munich, you'll see Joshua Kimmich and, and Goretzka move in- and take different shapes. And we'll see something similar with Ajax when they have Gravenberg next to Etzen Alvarez in that midfield they have Alvarez sit deeper, and, and he'll be the, the almost a single pivot at times like Joshua Kimmich is for Bayern Munich, which then allows his midfield partner to step higher and move into different spaces. So from a shape standpoint, absolutely. From a tactical standpoint as well, this Ten Hag Ajax team, and this is one reason why I think he would do well at Manchester United at some point, not that I'm advocating for him to make that move really anytime soon. I'd rather see him at Ajax, to be honest, Taylor. But uh, one reason that this team is so good and why I think Ten Hag would work at Manchester United is because we see a balance of possession play and transition attacking. And that's something you're mentioning there, Graham, with Bayern Munich. I think that's something that Julian Nagelsmann does fairly well with Bayern. And we've seen it on display this season. They can keep hold of the ball and and they can make the opposition suffer with their own possession, but then they can also press. They can also get on the ball and attack quickly in transition. And in this game, guys, I thought it was Ajax's transition play. their attacking transition play after they recovered the ball that made PSV's life the hardest. So yeah, Graham, I think that comparison is very real. Ajax, in some ways, are kind of a mini Bayern Munich in how they play.
1: How much of it do you think is the philosophy of the club? Because we talked about this a little bit with the Champions League last week. Uh, either of you are welcome to jump in on this one. Uh, but when it comes to their kind of resounding win over Dortmund that Joe mentioned, there was this argument that like they're both clubs that rely on young players, but veteran players at the same time and that kind of blend to get the experience, but to get the excitement and enthusiasm and ideally the goals and then see what happens. And for Ajax, what seems to be happening is consistent performances domestically, and at least this season, uh, consistent performances in the Champions League as well. And I, I, I struggle to think of the differences aside from just that Ajax have this kind of enduring philosophy, this way they're going to play. They have a manager who seems to have embraced that, and it seems to be paying dividends this season.
2: Yeah, I, I think that that philosophy definitely gives them a base, right? That that, that gives them a, a little bit of an advantage over other clubs, and it maybe allows a manager to come in, and he has a lot to work with already, and, and Hag does have a lot to work with. There's, I had a, a friend who went to an Ajax game for, uh, he had hospitality for an Ajax home game, and the, the, the restaurant that you have your pre-match meal in, overlooks the the youth pitches at the the, the, the I think it's called the Johan Cruyff Stadium now or the Johan Cruyff Arena and that just gives you an idea like Ajax know what they're all about like they're not going to be shaken from that they're not going to go they're not going to have managerial whiplash between different managerial appointments and I do think that does if you're a manager who if that aligns with your style of play and and the way you see the game that's going to help you and it, and it has helped Ten Hag but I also do think Eric Ten Hag is a pretty special coach. Um, We've seen coaches go into Ajax. You know, Peter Boss had some success there, but that that kind of wore off a little bit. He didn't reach the the heights that Ten, Ten Hag has, so... Yeah, you've got to give Ten Hag a lot of credit for what he's done with this team, um, for the way he's constructed this team as well. I know there is a sporting structure at Ajax with Overmars and Edwin van der Saar in an executive position, so he has had a little bit of a, of help in bringing a lot of those players in. But the way that that team has been assembled, we spoke after the Champions League about the mix of um, ages and the mix the mix of homegrown players and players who have been shrewdly scouted and 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 brought in from other countries like it just feels like a team that is ready to win now as as Joe kind of references you know they're they're playing as well as anyone in European football right now and and Ten Hag it's not surprising to me that he's been linked with a lot of the big jobs because that he feels like he could be one of the next managers to make that that leap up to the elite level with the likes of Klopp and Guardiola and Pochettino and those guys
1: Graham, we had this conversation a little bit, the three of us, uh this weekend about would Ten Hag want to leave Ajax midseason to take Manchester United if that gig were offered? We're bringing it full circle here. But Joe and I, I think, were of the opinion that that would be a risky decision for Ten Hag to leave this Ajax team this season for that Manchester United team. Mm-hmm. I think your at least part of your argument rested upon, yeah, but it's Man United. Yeah. <laughs>
2: Yeah, totally. And I know that's not a good argument, but it is an argument. Uh, I think mm-hmm. I always think it's, as outsiders, I always think these hypothetical situations are different because we are outsiders. And I think when you're in that position and you get arguably the biggest club in world football calling and saying, we want you to fix us. And we want, oh, by the way, we want you, to, we want to pay you triple, quadruple what you're getting paid at your current job. Like, it, that has to be appealing in some sense. Um, I, would, I would think so. <laughs> yeah. So, like, I I understand. I totally understand what Joe has been arguing. Yes, maybe the level-headed thing to do would be to stay at Ajax. This team can achieve some pretty great things this season. I expect they probably will go on a really deep Champions League run as long as the draws favorable to them. Manchester United or Manchester United, and there's a lot of talent at that club. You know, Chris Aronaldo's at that club, Rashford's at that club, Greenwood, you know, Sancho, all these players. Van de Beek, by the way, a player that, that Ten Hag got the best out of at Ajax. And
1: I don't know. If I was Manchester United, I'm giving him a call just to see what he says. It, I I sort of assumed there would be a, a pragmatism to, to his approach. Uh, he is Dutch, so the Dutch pragmatism would be in effect. I look at his playing and managerial career so far playing career. He won the second division in the Netherlands and he won the Dutch cup. Uh, as a manager, he has won the Eredivisie twice, he's won the Dutch Cup twice, but not much else outside of the Netherlands, which you might say is a knock against him, but I would argue that maybe that is a, a positive in the would-he-take-the-Man-United gig column, because it's an opportunity to go manage in England and to potentially win something with one of, if not the biggest clubs in the world, so to be able to—I'll say one of, they're definitely not the biggest club in the world anymore, but uh, it would be an opportunity to kind of go in there and be the one who fixes it, and I have to believe that is always going to— to appeal in the same way that, say, the New York Yankees' job, or maybe the New yeah. York Knicks' job, will appeal, or Real Madrid, something like that, where and it, there's that cachet to the name.
2: Yeah, and it's the same reason that big name players go to Manchester United. You know, Manchester United in the summer saying Sancho, Varane, and I know the Ronaldo one slightly different, but let's look at Sancho and Varane. You know, they they they're they're attracted to the size of the club, the task of turning that club around, because if whoever does turn that club around is going to be a legend, um, and. I do think it's appealing. I'm not sure. You, I, I don't think if you don't know what Eric Ten Hag is like as a person, and I, I don't, especially, I know more about him as a coach than as a, than as a person, then you can't really, I can't really make a judgment on whether it's a job that would would, to, would appeal to him. But it wouldn't surprise me if it if it did appeal to him.
1: And where are you on his fashion choices, Graham? I know that factors in as well. Oh, see, he wears a waterproof jacket very, very well. That would be top <laughs> of the list. Why he should get the Mayanity <laughs> job is he wears that jacket well. Joe, I know you wanted, I think you had like a five minute thing prepared on Waterproof Jack. Did you want to get to that now or do you want to hold off for another episode? <laughs> no,
3: I mean, we can hold off for another episode. I okay. do want to okay. toss in one more beat about Ajax. I think we've kind of yeah, please. taken this conversation captive and turned it back into Manchester United slightly here. <laughs> <laughs> Me? Never. Um, one thing to go back to kind of the, the comparison that Graham made between Ajax and Bayern Munich and, and some of what I noticed tactically from this team. Goals 3, 4, and 5 in this game for Ajax all had an element of defensive pressure and quick attacking transitions in them. So Anthony's goal in the 66th minute, it's Ajax winning the ball high up the field, then Daley Blind plays it into the box, and then Halera slides it over to Anthony, who scores easily, and then it's 3-0 at that point. Klaassen's goal, 76th minute, David Klaassen's goal later on in the second half. Ajax lose the ball in the final third, Edson Alvarez wins it back in the counter press. Edson Alvarez, by the way phenomenal player. You know, we've watched Mexico plenty, Taylor, over the last however long, and he is very good for them. He is very good for Ajax as well. Alvarez steps in, wins the ball in the counter press. Tadic ends up crossing it into the box. Heller can't get the ball out from under his feet on the end of that cross, but Klassen hits a shot and scores. It's 4-0. Then 93rd minute, PSV are done at this point, but Ajax are decidedly not done. Ajax win the ball in midfield. Shores plays a ball forward to Tadic in the box. Tadic scores 5-0. These goals, happened quickly like like from when Ajax won the ball to when the ball is in the back of the net there's not a lot of time for PSV to breathe and and for PSV coached by Roger or, or Roger Schmidt. I'm not exactly sure how to pronounce it at this point. This game confused me in that regard, but coached by a manager who loves the four triple two. They'll step high, they'll press, and PSV, to their credit, I thought were the better team in the first 15-20 minutes of this game. It's it's an unfortunate result. I've spent a lot of time gassing Ajax up and hyping them up, and I think that's been deserved. It's funny that this game, actually, I, I don't know how dominant Ajax really were. They were incredibly efficient with their attacking chances in the box, but they didn't create all that much relative to the scoreline in this game, I do think the five nothing flattered Ajax a little bit, but still, the way that they move the ball quickly from defensive pressure to the attack, it's it's lethal and it's hard to stop. Even for a team like PSV, who is the next closest team, or certainly was at the beginning of this game, to Ajax at the top of the Eredivisie table, this Ajax team, even when they're not at their best, and I truly don't think they were at their best in this game, they're still scary, you guys. Yeah. That 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 was the thing I was going to
2: say was we we've actually seen better from Ajax yes. this season. Obviously, the, the, maybe the most notable example being that Champions League win over Dortmund just a few days before this match. But I I felt like their their approach was slightly cruder than it has been recently. You know, there was a lot of overlapping runs. That's not necessarily a bad thing, by the way. That sounds like a like an insult. It was it was working at this this kind of slightly cruder approach. You know, overlap overlapping runs, crosses into the box, shots from the edge of the box. Um, you know, the, the first 60 minutes, almost every single Ajax chance came from someone getting to the byline and and, and cutting it back. And obviously th- that comes from a willingness to break the lines. And as I say, it's not I'm not me- I'm not meaning to cut them down in any way, but it was a slightly more traditional approach from them against this PSV team. But that to me just proves that how well-rounded they are as a, as a side. They can play in this way, which is maybe slightly more orthodox, or they can Pass through you through the center as they did a number of times against Dortmund. They, they are a bit of a, they, have, they know what they are, Ajax. They have a very clear vision of the way that they play, but they, they're also a bit of a Swiss, Swiss army knife and that they can get at you a number of different ways.
1: Yeah, because to Joe's point, I, I, w- I would agree. The first 15 minutes, I thought PSV were the more dominant side then uh, I think there's like Martinez has a shot that gets turned wide for a corner. And from there, I felt like Ajax just keep growing into the game because there is this relentlessness to the way they play and there is a cohesiveness to the way they play at that. So you all are right that they, like, maybe it's, it's cutting back a couple, two times. Maybe it's a little bit more brutalist at times than we would expect. But also for that first goal... I went back and watched this one several times because I thought it was so fun that even before Ajax get possession that leads to the goal, they twice are sort of trying to make something happen. PSV get the ball back, are immediately counterpressed or immediately put under pressure, and both times they have these kind of half clearances that don't go very far. The second one, which they do win, it's Birch running in. It's it's like just a, a calm header to keep the ball in bounds. Blind takes four touches to settle and pass the ball. And from there, it's an eight-pass move uh, that spreads pretty much the entirety of the field. Every pass is like 10 to 15 yards away. Not a lot of tight passing, but instead it's very rapid fire. From that four-touch from Blind, everything else is two or three-touch, usually two touches. And the final couple of touches would be... One touch passes and one touch goal. And just the relentlessness with which they pressed combined with the speed of the ball movement and then the sort of decisiveness in the finishing. I thought that first goal really sort of laid down the gauntlet for the way the rest of this game was going to go. And the way it went was that there were five more or four more goals, five nil in total for Ajax.
3: Yeah. A good performance from them, even if, as as we've kind of agreed on, I think, guys, even if it's not their best, the fact that Ajax can put a five nothing behind their direct title competitors and not be at their best says something about how this team is playing and how darn good they are
1: and how darn good joe is for pulling us back to ajax instead of making it another man united <laughs> conversation and on that note gentlemen i appreciate you all taking all the time to talk about these four games with me this past weekend graham ruthven thank you and thank you for the lovely uh, bolognese chat to begin this conversation <laughs> no problem i'll send you the the rest the whole recipe after we've stopped recording <laughs> Scottish Bolognese. Let's make it happen.
3: Joe, what about you? Joe Lowry, thank you for being here. Joe, have you got a dish that you like to make? Uh, I do. I've been working on learning how to make homemade pasta, which I I recognize ties into Graham's recipe here slightly. So I think we could actually combine these two things. The only challenge for me is I've been trying to roll it out by hand, which for Mm. any listeners who actually have made homemade pasta is they'll know it's a terrible idea. So I'm still lacking a pasta attachment for a mixer. Um, Maybe we can work on that. I don't know. Maybe I just need to work on that, guys. But that's that's my recipe, Taylor Pasta.
2: As a student, Joe, the answer you should have given was cereal. Uh,
3: was I do love cereal. <laughs> I do love cereal. And cereal got me through late night rewatches over the summer for US men's national team games. So, <laughs> yeah. yeah, I can go with cereal, even though, you know, it's not really something you have to make. And yeah, Whatever. Whatever. Cereal's good, guys.
1: Uh, I like to go with a breakfast of coffee and then more coffee. It's mm. usually my approach. Nice. Uh, and it makes my breath excellent. <laughs> but, gentlemen, thank you so much for joining me. Listeners, thank you all for joining us. We will talk to you all again very soon. Goodbye for now.